Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman. They did not know how much their lives would turn upside down and inside out. They did not know how much grief and hardship was about to hit. They did not know that the whole world was about to change. For at that point, on the eve of World War I, women's lives revolved around the home, a sheltered life of servitude to the family. While some did work, employment options were normally limited and unfulfilling. Most ended up in domestic service, chopping, shopping, scrubbing, lifting. It was relentless, mindless and thankless. Living in with your employers meant you were subject to their every whim, a life revolving around a series of tinkering bells up and down those stairs all day. Life below stairs didn't fare much better. There was a strict hierarchy, an unbreachable code that expected you to know your place. As a servant, you would be talked down to. You hoped to be fed, but often it was not enough to keep away the hunger. You would be beaten for minor misdemeanors, and should a young unmarried woman find herself in the family way, punishment would be severe. But nobody took much notice of the sexual exploitation of those same young women by their male employers. Despite creating a breeding ground for revolt, it seemed it rarely happened. Maybe because organising and domestic service came with huge risks, as Jesse Stevens would find out. Born in Glasgow in 1893, she left school at 15, finding employment in domestic service. Her head was already full of revolutionary ideas. Her father was a member of the Independent Labour Party and sent Jessie to Socialist Sunday School. And she was a member of the Women's Social and Political Union run by the Pankhursts. So when things got bad in the house where she served, she tried to organise her fellow workers. It was met with resistance, and once her employer got wind of it, she was sacked. They made sure it didn't stop there. Across the city, her reputation as a troublemaker spread. Unable to find work, she decided to leave Glasgow, move away from her family and friends, and ever think she had ever known. She landed in London. While the streets weren't paved of gold, there were more jobs and workplaces were unionised. She joined the Domestic Workers' Union and it didn't take long before she moved from participant to leader, speaking at rallies in Hyde Park and Finsbury Park. Jessie remained involved in the Women's Social and Political Union and attended marches and demonstrations. She was even at the infamous Black Friday protests that exploded in violence. Women were attacked by police and male bystanders. Jessie's hat was ripped off her head. She got off lightly compared to the others, though, who were kicked, punched and even sexually assaulted. Then the war came. There had been cracks in the women's movement before, but now they became a giant crevice. Emmeline Pankhurst threw herself into the war effort, ceasing all campaigning and diverting funds to the government they'd been so bitterly fighting weeks before. She took a prominent role in the White Feather campaign, where seemingly able-bodied young men were presented with a white feather to symbolise their cowardice for not enlisting. As strangers, these women had no idea whether the men they were harassing were in fact fit for service, or even old enough, 
it was not unknown for a 15-year-old boy, face flushed with shame, to walk to the nearest recruitment office after receiving a feather. Emmeline's daughter Sylvia had established the East London Federation of Suffragettes earlier in the year. She took a radically different position. She was a pacifist and saw with her own eyes the hardships war inflicted on the working classes. By September 1914, 750,000 men had already enlisted. Without workers, many of the factories closed down. Having lost their main breadwinner and with no other work available, families became destitute. What's more, as food was sent overseas to feed troops and less arrived back because of German submarine attacks, prices spiralled. By 1918, costs had more than doubled. The East London suffragettes opened their own toy-making factory, providing work for unemployed women at a living wage. They set up a creche in a disused pub called the Gunmaker's Arms. It was renamed the Mother's Arms and became the first Montessori nursery in Britain. They also set up a cost-price canteen. While the food was a little on the tasteless side, it provided an affordable hot meal for those too hungry to care. It wasn't long before the principle of women's place being in the home began to crumble. In 1916, male conscription forced employers to accept that they needed women's labour. The government coordinated campaigns and recruitment drives as factories reopened or repurposed themselves to provide vital war equipment. Many domestic servants took the call, packing their bags, sending their upper-class employers into turmoil. Many women headed to the munitions factories. By the end of the war, at least one million women had been added to the British workforce, with munitions being the single largest employer. While the pay was an improvement on domestic service, the working conditions were alarming. Chemicals used in explosives turned their skin yellow and their hair green and they took daily risks working with explosives. This huge increase in the female labour force led to a surge in trade union membership. In 1914, women's membership stood at around 357,000, but rose to over a million by 1918. But this rise in organised labour did not lead to equal pay. In fact, women were paid so disproportionately to men, companies would employ several women to replace one man who'd left for war. Meanwhile, the widowed mother still had to feed her kids with those inflated food prices. There were various attempts by unions at arbitration, but the process was long-winded and often fruitless. Over in Bow, the East London suffragettes employed their pre-war tactics to pressure the government. Deputations arrived on governmental doorsteps, and on one warm summer's day in 1915, the women marched up to Whitehall with their banners, chanting, Equal pay for men and women! and wages must rise. Meanwhile, Sylvia Pankhurst consumed herself with an impassioned letter-writing campaign to Prime Minister David Lloyd George. The government relented and in 1915 launched a special inquiry. It resulted in an agreement to pay women the same peace rates as men, that is, the same pay according to output. But no special conditions were laid down for time rates, where pay was calculated by the hours spent on the factory lines. So employers used this loophole, switching women workers over to time rates. It wasn't the result most hoped for, but women were not done yet, as we shall see after the break. Do you 
enjoy stories of women who broke the rules and changed the way our society thinks and acts? Well, there are loads more at eastlondonwomen.org.uk. There is also a walking tour app where you can go on self-guided tours around local heritage landmarks and resources for younger members of your family to learn about this fascinating but largely untold history. Find all that and more at eastlondonwomen.org.uk. I'm Esther Freeman, this is Rebel Women. We're back with part two, Bus Women. World War I sent the transport sector into crisis. A fifth of the workforce was lost to the armed forces. They simply could not cope. They had no other option. They put out the call to women. And they answered in their thousands. They became conductors, ticket collectors, porters and even drivers. The number of women employed in the transport industry expanded by 555%. By the end of the war, the London General Omnibus Company was employing over 3,500 women and thousands more were employed by the other transport operators in the city. For the men, that is when all the trouble started. It was obvious to the women that they were doing exactly the same work as the men, yet getting paid a fraction of their salary. Unsurprisingly, the management did not support equal pay, but neither did the unions. Women were mere interlopers, holding the jobs until the men returned. It made sense that they should be paid less. For a group of women at Wilson Bus Depot, it all got too much. On August 16th, 1918, the women met in secret. Without consulting or even informing either the management or the trade union leaders, they decided to strike the following day. As it hit the news, women in Hackney began organising too, joining the next morning, along with Holloway, Archway and Acton. The fire spread across London and by the evening, thousands of women had stopped work. By August 23rd, women, bus and tram workers in Hastings, Bath, Bristol, South Wales, Southend and Birmingham had joined in. Of 27,000 women employed in the industry, 18,000 had stopped work. They were joined by tube workers and even some men came out in solidarity. The strike was initially for a five shilling war bonus that was paid to men but not women. Following a series of mass meetings, these demands were superseded by a call for equal pay. Each day the striking women gathered, many with their children, setting up picnic blankets laden with sandwiches and lemonade. Around them their sisters chanted, same work, same money. With the sun shining, you might say it felt a little like a holiday, a holiday for the righteous. The women brought towns and city centres to a standstill. They stranded shoppers and disrupted businesses. But all in all, the public were supportive. Finally, on the 25th of August, after a tumultuous meeting, a deal was settled. The women won their five shilling bonus, although they would not win the wider fight for equal pay. At 11 o'clock on the 11th of November 1918, wailing sirens signalled the end of the war. The Manchester Guardian reported that sombre crowds watched in the yellow autumn sun as two flags rose in remembrance on the town hall. Meanwhile in East London, female munition workers surged forth from factories, some even reporting dancing in the streets. By evening, the trams had stopped and the women drivers and guards left their posts. The end of the conflict saw a rapid falling away of women workers across most industries. As the men returned, they were expected to vacate their posts. There would be little to no support from the unions. 
And while in 1918 some women would gain the vote, supposedly for their contribution to the war effort, it seems only certain women would be compensated. Working-class women who risked their lives in the munitions factories would wait another 10 years for their vote. Not that gaining the vote would advance women's rights for equal pay. In fact, no longer having the suffrage campaign to unite them, the women's movement completely fell apart. Women's differing political views zoomed into focus as opposing groups became embroiled in disagreements. As the decade gave way to the Roaring Twenties, it seemed many younger women were more interested in parties than politics. In the interwar years, the call for pay parity would have disappeared altogether if it were not for one group of determined women, women who cut their political teeth in the suffrage movements and were not about to back down. Join us next week as we delve into the world of education as women teachers go head-to-head with an embittered male workforce. This is Rebel Women. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For show notes, reading lists and further stories about East London women, visit our website, eastlondonwomen.org.uk. Rebel Women is part of the Women Activists of East London Project, which has been developed by Share UK, a non-profit community group based in London. Special thanks to the Barrier Mill and Norman Melbourne Trust for their support of today's episode. 